If you would, take your Bible now, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. You know, in our world, we regularly, on a daily basis, pass warning signs. Sometimes they're simple warning signs. Maybe you're talk, taking a walk in your neighborhood and see a sign on your neighbor's fence that says, Beware of dog. Maybe you're driving down the road and you see a road sign that says, watch for wildlife. Or if you've ever driven in the mountains, you see signs that say, watch for falling rocks, which is always disconcerting. You know, those kinds of warning signs are there to keep us from harm. They're telling you that you had better heed the warning because if you don't, something bad may happen to you. But there are other kinds of warning signs that we see in our lives as well that have a a positive motivation. Most of these come to us in the form of advertisements. We're told on television, on the radio, on billboards that we don't want to miss out on this limited time offer. And this is used to sell everything from hamburgers to air conditioners to houses. And both kinds of warnings, the negative and the positive, are both intended to drive us to action. They tell us that we either need to act to protect ourselves or we need to act to benefit ourselves. But either way, action is imperative. And in our study of Hebrews, we've discovered that the author here also loves to use warnings to motivate us to act. And we've been looking at a second warning in the the letter to the Hebrews. And what's interesting about this warning passage is that the author uses both a negative motivation and a positive motivation. On the negative side, he has told us that we ought to to fear a hard heart of unbelief because it was hard-hearted unbelief that kept the wilderness generation from entering into the promised land. And many people think of the Bible only through the lens of that negative idea. They think that the Bible is simply a, a book of doom and gloom intended to scare people into conformity. But that's not true at all. And the author of Hebrews now has been concerned to to also turn the tables to the positive and say, while it is true that we ought to fear the judgment of God for our sin if we harden our hearts, at the same time, it is also true that for those who have genuine faith, there is offered to us a promise, a wonderful promise, a glorious promise of entering into the eternal rest of God. And that positive motivation is just as powerful as the negative, if not more so. And it's to that positive warning and motivation that we turn our attention again this morning. The call to to think on the fact that God offers to us freely his glorious rest for all who would turn in faith to Christ. The book of Hebrews, of course, is centered on the theme of the superiority of Christ. We've seen that throughout We're looking at a section now that began in chapter 3, verse 7. It runs through chapter 4, verse 13. And we're applying the truth that Jesus is superior to Moses. What are the implications of the truth of Jesus' superiority over Moses? We've been looking at that. And the author has told us repeatedly this one simple and yet powerful theme. We are to be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief towards Christ. That's the second warning in the book of Hebrews. And to give us this warning, he's been expounding on Psalm 95. He's taken the text of Psalm 95, and he's working his way through different portions of that text and applying it to us. And we, again, this morning, will see implications from Psalm 95. You'll remember if you were with us in chapter 3, we saw four tactics for guarding ourselves against 
a hard heart of unbelief, you'll see those tactics on the screen. The fourth tactic of guarding ourselves was that we're to cling to faith. And that led us then to a lesson. The lesson from the wilderness generation was this. Unbelief produces disobedience. Unbelief produces disobedience. Now, we turn the corner into chapter 4, and the author turned his gaze and his application directly at us. He, he stopped talking primarily about the wilderness generation now, and he's talking to you and to me. And so with that in mind, let's read Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, down through verse 10. The author writes, Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6 is where we pick up for this morning. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of a day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now what we come to in chapter 4 is first off this sober warning in verse 1. Fear falling short of God's rest. We've already looked at two explanations of why that's true. The first explanation is that unbelievers are excluded from God's rest. That's why we should fear not entering. We saw that in the wilderness generation. And then the second explanation is that believers gain entrance into God's rest. This was the last time we studied Hebrews a couple of weeks ago, verses 3 to 5. We saw that we can, we can enter into God's rest. In fact, those who have genuine faith are said in the present tense to have already entered into that rest. And we looked at God's rest and explained that in the present tense, how we enter into God's rest, and in the future tense, what will it be like in eternal glory. Now, if you weren't with us, you can go back and hear those explanations, but I won't go through that again this morning, because actually what we come to this morning in verse 6 will continue to expound upon all the things we taught last time. There's a significant amount of overlap here, and that's okay, because he wants us to be sure that we really understand God's rest and that we understand the benefit that's being offered to us in God's rest. And so as we turn the corner into verse 6, we come to his second major point here, a joyful pronouncement. So we saw a sober warning in verse 1. Now we have a joyful pronouncement. And here's the pronouncement. God's promised rest remains open. God's promised rest remains 
open. Look back with me at chapter 4 and verse 6. He begins here, therefore. I've told you before in this section, if you want to follow his argument, look for that word therefore. Every time he says therefore, he introduces a a new major argument or point in his uh, argument here about God's rest. Therefore, so based on what he's just said, this was last week, but if you missed last week, that's okay, because what he's going to do now is give us two summary statements of everything he just said. So if you want to know what it is he's talking about, just read the next two statements. He says, therefore, here's the first statement, since it remains for some to enter it, it being God's rest. Since it remains for some to enter God's rest. Now, if you were here last time, you remember that the author brought up the point that when he's talking about God's rest, he's really talking about this rest of God that began way back on the seventh day of creation. When God ceased his labors from creation and he rested on the seventh day. This was Hebrews 4, 4. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So therefore the offer of the true rest of God was not confined to this one historical moment in which the people in the wilderness failed to enter into the promised land. That's simply an illustration, a physical illustration about a greater spiritual reality that the author wants us to focus on now. It proves that this offer of God's rest originated there in the seventh day of the creation week. Now, it remains then that some will enter. That's good news. That's this glorious idea that there is a group, there are some who will yet enter into this rest of God. That's the first thing. The second summary statement is this. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. What he's saying is, first of all, we know that some will enter God's rest. Secondly, we know that that some was not the wilderness generation. They failed to enter God's rest. This was Hebrews 4, 5. And again, in this passage, they, remember the emphasis there is on the word they, they, the wilderness generation, shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95, 5. But I want you to notice something interesting here before we move on. The author again highlights the relationship between genuine faith and obedience. There's a direct tie between the two. We've already explored this in Hebrew, so I won't belabor the point, but he brings it up again here. Because remember, back in chapter 3, verse 19, what was the reason the author said that kept the wilderness generation from entering into the promised land? Hebrews 3, 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And yet here, he says in chapter 4, and yet they were kept from entering because of disobedience. So which is it? Was it their unbelief or was it their disobedience that kept them from entering into the promised land? The answer is yes. It was both of those things. It was their disobedience and their lack of faith. And what the author is doing here again is reminding us there's a direct tie between genuine faith and that producing good works or or obedience. We see this in the New Testament and other places. 1 John chapter 2, it's very clear. Verses 3 to 6. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, 
in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now it's important to understand that the author of Hebrews is not teaching a works-based salvation. I want to be very clear about that. Salvation is attained only by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Instead, what the author has been careful to, to help us see is that genuine faith results in conversion. And when a person is converted, when they are regenerated and made new, that produces fruit, good spiritual fruit, so that they begin to obey in growing measure the commands of God in Scripture. And that's the tie-in here. The point is the wilderness generation continually disobeyed. They continually rebelled, even though verbally they were saying, we will do what you say. We believe in Yahweh. But their, their, their works evidenced their lack of faith. And the author's highlighting that tension for us again here. They didn't enter because they didn't have real faith. And we know they didn't have real faith because it didn't produce obedience. But understand, with all of that said, the author's intention for us today is not discouragement. This is not a downer of a passage. His intention for us is joyous hope. Because don't forget, he just said, some will enter that rest. There is a group who will enter into that rest. It just wasn't this group in the wilderness generation. And here's the result of that. Here's the pronouncement. Here's the good news. Look back at the text in verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, here's the pronouncement. He again fixes a certain day. He being God. God fixes or appoints a certain day. He appoints another entry day, another entry opportunity. He's explaining that God, in his kindness, has given to us a fresh opportunity, invitation to enter into his rest. And these words are as relevant for us today as they were when the original audience heard them read. These words are inspired by the Holy Spirit and directed right at us. It's a not-so-subtle call for us to recognize that we have an opportunity to be included in that group that he called the some. Some will enter that rest. And, and we have an opportunity to be counted in that number because he has again, God has again, fixed an opportunity. He's fixed a day of entrance. And this is the positive motivation. We've come full circle now. This should have us on the edge of our seats, excited about the opportunity to enter into this rest. You know, sometimes the limited time offers that are given to us in commercials don't always add up. So maybe you've gone to eat that burger that was supposed to be the best burger ever, and it wasn't the best burger. This limited time offer that's offered to us by God himself will not disappoint it's every bit as, as good as he says it is, and it's, it's beyond your wildest imagination. He's saying you can't afford to miss out on this limited time offer, and the good news is you don't have to because he has fixed a day. He's fixed another opportunity to enter into this wonderful rest. So the logical question then is, when? What's the day? If he's fixed a day, what day is it? Well, look back at the text. 
The day, he says, is today. Verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today. Today is the day that God has fixed, that he has offered for entrance into this rest. Now, we're going to see in a moment, the author's quoting directly from Psalm 95. I'll explain that as we get to it here in a second. But first of all, I just want you to step back and think about the implications of this word today. What are the implications of the fact that God says he fixes a day in which he offers entrance into his eternal rest, and that day is this very day. It's today. The word today should should evoke from us a sense of both joy and urgency all at the same time. Immediate joy followed by immediate urgency. It evokes joy because you don't have to wait. You don't have to RSVP. You don't have to wait in a line for some future day that you don't even know if you'll be here for. The day is today. And yet at the same time, the word today produces a sense of urgency because it insinuates the limited nature of this offer. Notice he doesn't say that it's offered forever. He says he's fixed a day, and that day is today. Just think of it this way. Imagine that a friend comes to you and says that, that he has just received verifiable news, true news, that Jeff Bezos has decided to give away $100,000 to every person who makes a purchase on Amazon on a certain day. Any, anything, you buy anything of any value. And so you get excited, and you ask the obvious follow-up question, on what day do I need to make this purchase? And delighted, your friend says, well, the offer is... It's for today. He's offering it today. And so immediately you would feel a burst of inner joy and great urgency. I guarantee you whatever appointment you had or whatever you had to do, it could wait the five minutes it would take to buy something on Amazon to make sure that you get counted in that $100,000 giveaway. Understand that that's how the author of Hebrews intends for you to feel right now, only to an infinitely greater degree. The offer is today. You should be bursting with joy at the thought, I could be counted in that number. I could be part of the sum. And there's this urgency, what am I to do? How can I be part of that? He wants us to look at the kindness of God that this offer is right now. Understand if the hypothetical application or illustration of receiving $100,000 got you more excited than this idea of entering into God's rest, you have grossly misunderstood and underestimated the precious value of the offer that God has extended to you. Let me just tell you some of the things that are included. I can't list them all. I gave a list last time. I'm giving a new list this time. I could give a new list every week of the, the wonderful realities that are included in this rest. Think on this. Right now, for those who are in this rest, you have a right relationship with God through Christ. You have adoption as God's son or daughter. Salvation from God's wrath over your sin. The reception of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. You have peace with God and the peace of God. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit there to convict of sin, to strengthen your faith, to illuminate the truth of God's word, to gift you for service, to comfort and to strengthen you in trial and temptation. You have the promise of God's help in the continual growth and sanctification in this life. 
and the perseverance of your faith until the Lord brings you home. That's yours right now if you're a Christian and an infinite degree of other things. What about in eternity? What will this eternal rest look like? Well, it means citizenship in God's kingdom. And that, remember, is a place where we will know Christ face to face. A place free from sin and ruled by righteousness. A place where sickness and death and grief have been removed. A place where our efforts are not thwarted by the vanities of life in this present world. A place where we will worship God untainted by sin in perfect relationship with Him and with others. And a place where we will receive a new physical body that's free from the effects of sin and the fall and age and that's tailor-made to last for eternity. And I'm just getting started. We could spend the entirety of this morning just listing example after example of the riches that are the, belong to those who are counted in this group called the sum who will enter into the rest of God. And the author of Hebrews sees this as a joyful pronouncement to you this morning to say, God has fixed another day and the day has come. It's today. It's today. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, understand today is the day of salvation. The author says that God extends to you in his son a gracious offer to be forgiven of your sins and made right with him because of what Jesus did on the cross. If you would only recognize that you're a sinner who's separated from a holy God, who deserves the wrath of God. If God gave you justice, it would be wrath. And yet also understanding that God has made provision for your sin in his son. That Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for sin, and rose again from the grave on the third day, proving that he was the son of God and that God the Father accepted his sacrifice. And that if you would just humble yourself in repentance and faith, putting your trust in Jesus Christ alone, understanding that he and he alone is your only hope of salvation, then you, friend, would be forgiven of your sin and given immediately the privilege of entering into this glorious rest. He's fixed today, and it's today. Don't miss the opportunity to enter into this glorious rest. And if you're already a believer this morning, this is for you. It's for you to rejoice. It's for you to, to realize it's already yours. You already participate in it. It's your every day. You live, you move around in it. You live in the rest of God, and, and that fact guarantees that you will be in the eternal rest of God as well. It's for all of us this morning. The question is, how do we know this is true? Where is he getting this from? On what is the author basing his implications and his assumptions, his pronouncement? Well, he assumes that you may have questions, and so he turns to arguments to prove his point. He's going to give us two arguments that result in one conclusion. Two arguments and one conclusion. Here's the first argument in verse 7. David announced a new day of rest. David announced a new day of rest. Understand that when the author makes these claims, again, he's meditating on Psalm 95. And, and so if you read on in the text here, verse 7, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David. 
saying through David. Now this is a reference to the doctrine of inspiration, by the way. God is speaking through a man. He's speaking through David. These are God's words recorded by a man. This is the doctrine of human or, or, or of divine inspiration. And the, he gives this pronouncement then, specifically through David. There's some debate over whether or not the author is saying that David actually wrote Psalm 95 or whether or not he's saying David in the sense that David is associated with the Psalms, the Psalter, and that this quote comes from the Psalms. But really that's neither here nor there. It comes from God through David. He says, after so long a time. After so long a time. Now what does that mean? Well, understand, tie this together in your mind. What the author is saying is that this, this quote, the quote that he's pulling from, was written, inspired by God, written by David, many generations after the wilderness generation existed. Hundreds of years later, in the Psalm 95, these words are written. That's what he means, after so long a time. After generations have passed, David's now ruling the people. The people have crossed over under the leadership of Joshua. They're in the land. They're there. Hundreds of years later, it's, that's when this quote comes that the author's building his argument on. Then he says, just as has been said before. Now here he's referring to the fact that he's already quoted this several times. He knows that. We preachers like to repeat ourselves, and he's just saying, I know, I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again because there's another point that I want you to get. So this quote came a long time ago through David, which was a long time after the original generation that it was said to. It's been repeated several times, but now he wants us to look at it anew. And here again is the quote. Look back at the text. Here's our quote. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the word today is the word we're focusing on. This is where he gets it from. How is it that he can say that a new day has been appointed and it is today? Well, it's from Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In the psalm, the original authors writing again to the people of Israel during the time of David, calling them to heed the warning, the illustration of the wilderness generation. So this is initially to the people of Israel in Psalm 95. And notice that the author feels free to use the word today. Hundreds of years after it's taken place, the author in the Psalm 95 says, Today, Israel, don't miss it. You don't harden your hearts. Don't be like them. And so our author in Hebrews is saying if it was legitimate for the author of the psalm hundreds of years later to apply that contemporarily to his audience, it's still legitimate today to apply it to our audience. That's the point. And so the psalmist said today, the author of Hebrews says today, and that today resonates into today. It is therefore a timeless principle, is what he's saying. It's relevant for all time. All people everywhere should hear this word. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's where he gets it from. First of all, it came through David. But secondly, there's another argument, and that's in verse 8. Here's the second argument. Joshua's entrance was not a final fulfillment. Joshua's entrance was not a final fulfillment. This is verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now we know both biblically and historically 
that after the wilderness generation dies off in the wilderness, the people of Israel do in fact go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Moses dies, he passes the mantle to Joshua, Joshua takes the people across the Jordan into the promised land, and by God's grace, they conquer the vast majority of that land. And there was a sense in which rest was given to them. And so some people might say, well, if, if rest was given to the people of Israel under Joshua, then maybe there is no continuing application. Maybe this, maybe this isn't relevant for us today, they might say. After all, listen to Joshua 22, verse 4. This is Joshua himself. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. These words are said to the three tribes who uh, settled on the other side of the Jordan. They came into the promised land to help the others fight the battle and win. And now he's saying, look, God's given rest. They've won. You can go back to your part of the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. And he uses the word rest. God has given rest to your brothers. So some might say, see, there you go. It's done. There's no relevance for us today. But understand, that was, that was a, a type of, of physical rest in the land in which the war had ceased on the whole, anyway, in large part. But the author of Hebrews is saying there was always intended to be a spiritual application of this that went beyond just this physical entrance into the promised land. And so here in Psalm 95, we have proof of that because again, hundreds of years later, David says, today. And he says he wouldn't have done that if in his mind, this didn't apply to his generation because it was fulfilled by Joshua. So obviously, Joshua didn't fully fulfill the promise. There has always been a greater spiritual promise of rest, and it's that spiritual promise that's extended to you and I today. And don't forget where that promise comes from. Don't forget the context of Hebrews. Remember where we began in Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to the opening words of the book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. He's spoken to us through Jesus Christ, his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he's inherited a more excellent name than they. So remember in the context of the book of Hebrews, where the theme is the superiority of Jesus Christ, we're still making this point that Moses brought good news to Israel, the good news of entering the promised land, but we have received the good news of the gospel through none other than the very Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, and this is the promise of rest that the author of Hebrews is offering to us, the greater promise of salvation from sin given none other by Jesus Christ himself. Now, having argued his point, hopefully you see why he drew this conclusion in Psalm 95. He's going to reiterate his pronouncement with a final conclusion that states it just slightly differently to highlight an important point about this rest that's offered to us. And this is verses 9 and 10. Here's the conclusion. 
God secures Sabbath rest for his people. God secures Sabbath rest for his people. Having argued this, hopefully now you can see it, and this is the conclusion you ought to come to. What does he mean here by this Sabbath rest? Let's look back at the text. Verse 9, the word so begins, the word so actually could be translated consequently. That is, now that I've proven all this, here's the, here's the consequence, here's the point. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, with this word consequently or so, he's reiterating his initial pronouncement, this joyous pronouncement. A day has been fixed in which we are invited to enter into God's rest. But notice he says it differently here. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now what's interesting here is the author chooses to use a Greek word that's used nowhere else in the entire New Testament. The word translated Sabbath rest is one Greek word. In fact, some have even said that this may be the first uh, instance that this word is used ever in the Greek language because we only see it used in secular Greek after this time period, after it's used here. And so he may have coined this Greek word to make a very specific point. Up until this point, as he's talked about God's rest, he's just used the simple term for rest. But now he changes the word to mean Sabbath rest. And in context, this ties together beautifully because remember, the rest that he's offering to us began when? On the seventh day of the creation week. And remember that the Sabbath regulations were based on the creation week. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 11, 8 to 11. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle, sojourner who stays with you. And here's the reason, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea that, and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So again, the author's emphasizing what rest he's talking about and where this rest originates. It originates in the, the creation week. It's a Sabbath rest. It's based on that seventh day in which God rested. And he adds this final remark that ties it together. It kind of gives us a clue as to why he's chosen to use this unique term, Sabbath rest. Here's his explanation. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So in some way, by entering into this rest, we cease our works just as God the Father ceased his works on the seventh day. Now, what does this mean? What's the significance of reiterating this point and choosing this particular word, Sabbath rest? Well, let me, let me explain, first of all, what it does not mean, because I want to clear some potential confusion. It doesn't mean that we as New Testament believers in the church age ought to live under the regulations of the Sabbath laws. That, that's not the author's intention at all. In fact, if you were here when we studied Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, we looked at the fact that in the church age, we are no longer required to keep the Sabbath or other festival 
uh, days, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus the Messiah is the substance of all those Old Testament shadows. They all pointed to him, and now that he's come, we're no longer required to keep those regulations as Israel was. So if it doesn't mean that, if he's not calling us to sort of go back into his Sabbath observance, then what is he calling us to? Well, the connection point here in the author's mind, again, has to do with this idea of rest and ceasing from our labors in the way that God ceased from his works. You remember the Sabbath regulations given in the Old Covenant contained several requirements, but, but one of them was the absence of work. It was a day of rest. And remember, all along, the Sabbath was built off of God's rest on the seventh day, so it, it had its founding there, its foundation there. But also understand there are elements of the Sabbath regulations that were meant to point our minds towards this future ultimate rest and things that would be contained in this ultimate eternal rest with God. So, first of all, you weren't to work. You didn't go to your job. The marketplace wasn't open. In fact, the wilderness generation, this is interesting, they weren't even allowed to go pick up manna off the ground on the Sabbath day. In fact, God would provide enough manna on Friday for them to gather enough manna to have it on Friday and on Saturday. This is Exodus 16, 29 and 30. See, the Lord's given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And this brings up an interesting point that as I've tried to meditate and mull over this idea in my own mind, sort of began to rise to the top. And that is this truth. Rest requires provision. Think about that. Rest requires provision. Even today in our modernized world, the basic necessities of daily life don't come to us unless we work. If you want food on your table and you want clothes on your back and you want a roof over your head, you've got to work to provide those things. But in the New Testament, that was even, even true to a greater degree. Literally, if you didn't work, some people were day laborers. If they didn't work that day, they didn't eat that night. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. And so understand, to take a day off on the Sabbath required trust. Required trust in God. That God was going to provide enough for you and your family in six days of work, even though you weren't working on the seventh. And so, obedience to that command caused the people to look upward at Yahweh. In the same way that very literally in the wilderness they had to because manna was not provided on that day. But throughout the course of their, the history of Israel, they have to look to Yahweh to provide. And I'm going to choose to obey and take this day off work, understanding that I'm not going to make any money on this day. Not to mention, the Sabbath day was not a day of complete inactivity. It was not just sitting around in your tent or in your house doing nothing. The point of not working was to free you up to do something else very important. It was a day of worship. In fact, it was called in the Old Testament a day of a holy convocation. This is Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. 
For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall do, do, not do any work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. This idea of a holy convocation is this idea of coming together. It's a coming together of the people for the purpose of worship, of, of giving glory to Yahweh on this day. And so when you think about the Sabbath, there are many things we could say, but think about this. Physical refreshment, God's perfect, gracious provision, and worship. Refreshment, provision, and worship. And now fast forward to coming of Messiah. And what does Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30? Something pretty bold when we think of it in this context. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and find rest. And this is not just any rest. Jesus, is, Jesus promises not just to put food on the table, but provision for their soul. I'm going to give you rest for your soul. Now think about it. Life in a fallen world is characterized by both physical and spiritual unrest. God offers to us in Christ perfect provision for eternal rest, physically and spiritually. The reason that Jesus could call us to himself to find this rest is because he had the power to make the provision for that rest. Come to me because I can make the provision. By my own life, death, and resurrection, I will provide for the rest your souls so desperately need. So understand when the author is saying that we're to respond to this, this good news of the gospel of Christ in and, and true faith, what the, the provision then is a cease from labor, cease your striving. Faith in the gospel is belief that all provisions have been made. When you turn to Christ from sin and trust in Christ, what you're saying is, I give up trying to earn my own way. I give up trying to secure my own provisions for my eternal destiny. Jesus Christ is the only one who can make provision for that. And so we turn to him in faith, trusting him that he will provide and has provided what is needed now in the spiritual sense and eternally in both the spiritual and physical sense. Those who respond to Christ then, as the author of Hebrews says, they cease working. They cease trying to earn their way with God. Think about it. As Christians, we now live as the recipients of God's rest. We've already received God's rest. And so our service of God now can be a free response of love and affection for Christ. We have the freedom to serve God without the pressure of trying to earn anything from him. We just serve him because we love him. Because he's already provided everything that's needed. Now take that concept of perfect spiritual provision and bring it over into the physical realm. Think of all the things that you need for your physical existence, all the provisions that have to be made, and picture a life in which all of them are perfectly met all the time without fail. And now we're starting to understand some of the eternal rest of God. 
where added to perfect spiritual provision is perfect physical provision. Think of what what you have to do in the course of your daily life to provide. All the work that must be done. And the fact is, not only do we have to work, but we can't work from a, a disposition of internal rest because the truth is, even if we work hard, we have no guarantee that our provisions are going to last until the day that we need them. We work and we work to store away for a rainy day, all the while with this nagging thought in the back of our minds that, you know, stock markets crash, inheritances get spent before they ever make it down to us, banks fail, and thieves steal. And so we work and we work to provide for our families, all the while knowing that we may very well come to the end of our lives or the the time that we need to draw off of those things and they're not there. In addition to that, we we work hard... at sanctification. Every day we battle with our sin. Every day we're putting off and we're putting on as with this, this constant being weighed down by the pressures of life and the stresses, stresses of life. And so all of this together, physical work and, and spiritual work, can produce a sense of, of restlessness if we're not careful. Now imagine a place in which perfect provision has been made for you in every sense imaginable. No more savings accounts. No more insurance policies. No more fretting over where you will live or what you will wear or what you will eat. No more internal or external battle with sin. No more aches and pains. No more weariness. No more physical exhaustion. Just perfect spiritual provision and perfect physical provision every day, all day, for eternity. That, my friends is why the author of Hebrews says, God has secured for his people a Sabbath rest. A Sabbath rest. Because all that provision has a purpose. Worship. Just as that provision provided a day of worship on the physical Sabbath day, for eternity, all your needs will be met so that you can not only relate to God in the right way, but you can worship Him freely. If our worship and fellowship in this life on Sunday mornings in a fallen world is this sweet, because it is sweet, just imagine what it will be when we live in a life of perfect, sinless provision and we join together in song. Oh, how we will sing. How we will feast together what joy will be in our hearts, how we will fellowship, what a joy it will be. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't want to miss this. Turn from your sin. Turn in faith and repentance to Christ and be reconciled to him. And if you're a believer, let me leave you with this one point as we close. One application. Allow God's eternal rest to change your temporal perspective. Allow God's eternal rest to change your temporal perspective. You know, last week we studied Ecclesiastes. We saw that God does not choose to shield his people from the vanities of life in a fallen world. God sovereignly allows trials and difficulties in our temporal lives for his own purposes, his good and sovereign purposes. But that doesn't mean that the trials of life aren't heavy and, and difficult to bear doesn't mean that we don't have to strain with every ounce of our, our strength, both physically and spiritually, to hold on to faith, to trust his goodness and love for us 
in those moments. But it's my prayer this morning that as we have yet again studied the rest of God and this Sabbath rest secured for us, that you not only look to eternity with greater anticipation, but you're encouraged in how to live your temporal life. Because there is a crucial difference between the believer and the unbeliever. It is true that when the stock market crashes, believers lose money, unbelievers lose money. It's true that our clothes and cars and homes and bodies wear out just like unbelievers. It's true that believers get sick, and yes, believers even die. But here's the crucial difference. Our hope is not in this temporal world. Our hope is not here. As believers, our hope is found squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has purchased for us in the life to come. And here's the, here's the good news about that, is it frees us up to enjoy this temporal life appropriately, and it also frees us up to live our life with an open hand, so that when God chooses to take away things that we love and enjoy, we can trust him. Because you know what? Our hope wasn't in those things. This is a truth that should anchor our hope for the future but it should also anchor our lives today. Let me just encourage you with this truth in mind that as you walk through the difficulties and joys of life to heed the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When Paul admonishes us to think on the things above, he means think on these kinds of things. Think on the eternal rest of God secured for you in Christ. And may it encourage us and embolden us to live for his glory, come what may. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so overwhelmed at your kindness and your goodness, at your provision for us, perfect spiritual provision. And even in this life, though you allow us to experience the troubles of life, you provide well for us here. Oh, but how infinitely you've promised to provide for us in eternity. So God, help us to, to believe these things. Help us to enjoy the spiritual rest that we have in Christ now and help us to anticipate the eternal rest in glory. Help that cause us to live in a way that honors you here for however long you leave us here. Enjoying the good gifts you've given, enduring the trials because our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a sure hope that will not fail us. Thank you for this eternal rest that you've secured and that you offer to us freely by grace for all who would come in faith. We love you so dearly. Help us to honor you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.